Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Can, can y'all believe we're, this is the 14th week that we've been doing the book of Acts. Uh, we started the week after Easter, so this is the 14th week that I've actually preached on Acts. And um, what's been amazing is I'm just preaching what's next in a text. And so we, we end chapter 7, we open chapter 8. What's been so crazy to me is that every week we preached, it's been like what we needed to hear. And so apparently the Holy Spirit knows what we need to hear. and He just lines it up that way. And so... Uh, I think God's going to speak to us today. Somebody told me last week, were you preaching to me? I'm like, well, I wasn't speaking to First Baptist. Yes, I was speaking to you. So, so I do believe God wants to speak to us today. Just, just, it's been a while since we've done a pop quiz on the book of Acts. I just want to go back just a little bit. Y'all remember who wrote the book of Acts? There's a guy named what? Luke. Luke's profession was he was a what? He was a doctor, a physician. Y'all remember the guy's name that Luke wrote the book to? Theopolis. We call him in O-Town. We call him Theo. So he wrote it to Theo, and the book of Acts was just a continuation of the book of Luke. The book of Luke was simply the works of, of Jesus done by Jesus. It was ministry done by Jesus. The book of Acts is just a continuation of the ministry of Jesus done through his church. And so that's what we've been talking about, and I'm excited today. I'm not going to so much preach to you today, maybe a little bit, but I want to teach. And uh, just remember how this thing started the book of Acts starts right after the, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus resurrects. He comes back to earth and he spends 40 days with the, with the disciples. And he's, he's given them some insight. And he, and he tells them two things before he ascends back into heaven. Number one, he says, don't leave here. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave. That's, that's rule number one. And he says, wait, because the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he says, when the promise of the Holy Spirit does come, you're going to have to do something with it. I want to read it to you because we're going to revisit it today. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is what Jesus tells the disciples. He says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. When he says these things, he ascends back into the, to heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes. That's Acts chapter 2. They, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other languages, and they start preaching the gospel. And the first five chapters of the book of Acts is the gospel spreading all over Jerusalem. They're, they're preaching. The church is growing. By, by now, the church has probably 20,000 members in it. The, the people are getting saved. People are getting healed. We're seeing miracles performed. We see believers that are taking care of one another. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it tells us that not one believer went without, that the, the church was taking care of each other. And so all these great things are happening. And then we get to Acts chapter 6, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that that these guys come to the apostles and say, hey, wait a minute, there's some people over here we're not taking care of. And those were the widows. And these Hellenistic Jews come and they say, we're not taking care of those, those ladies. And so the Bible tells us that the apostles tell the ones who see the need to take care of the need. The ones who complained about it would be the solution to what they complained about. So they appoint seven men. And we talked about one of those guys last week. His name was, you remember last week? Was anybody here? Stephen, thank you. And Stephen, the Bible says he was full of the spirit and he speaks to the crowds. He speaks to these men who were full of themselves. And because of the pride that 
was on the inside of them. They, he, they resisted the message. And we talked last week. If you didn't listen to it, you can go back and listen to every message on podcast. It was the spirit versus the flesh. And it wasn't just the battle between Stephen and the others. It's a battle that resides on the inside of every single one of us. And I want to pick up where we left off last week. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Then we're going to jump right into Acts chapter 1. It says this. Now, when they heard these things, talking of the message that Stephen gave them, they were enraged. And they, gave ground, and they ground their teeth at him. But he was full of the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time we see Saul in the New Testament, but it certainly won't be the last. It says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sign against them and, or the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen preaches the gospel. They don't like what he said. It went against their agenda. So they stone him. And while they're stoning him, we're introduced to a man named Saul. Everybody say Saul. Let's pick this up now. Acts chapter 8. I want to read you three verses. It says this. It says, and Saul approved his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Verse 2 says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 1 says, on that day, there arose a great persecution. A great persecution. I, I want to preach today a message. And, I, and I, I want this to be a message of encouragement. When you hear it on the surface, you're going to say, man, that doesn't sound very encouraging. But I promise you this. If you stay with me till the end, you're going to leave here encouraged. Does anybody need some encouragement today? I want to preach a message to you today simply entitled, The Persecuted Church. The Persecuted Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the reading of your word. God, we know that your word is spirit-breathed. You put it there. God, your word declares that when it goes out, it doesn't return void. So as I speak your word today, Lord, hide me behind your cross. Let this not be my words or my thoughts, but your words and your thoughts. And God, we pray by the end of the day, may we never be the same. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. The persecuted church. The persecuted church. We've been doing this study now for 14 weeks. It's taken us 14 weeks to get through seven chapters. But if we were doing this chronologically and putting a date to this, when, when the book of Acts starts in Acts chapter 1, when, when Jesus ascends into heaven and he leaves the mandate for them to wait in Jerusalem, this is 29 A.D., by the time we get to Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, by the time we see in Saul come on the stage and the persecution of the first century church, it's now 35 AD. So six years has transpired in what we've read over the last 14 weeks. In these, in these six plus years, there's been some bumps, there's been some bruises, but most of what was experienced in the church was, was pretty good. We, we see people getting saved, we see uh, we see. Uh, miracles happening. We see the spirit of God being poured out. And, and yes, there's some bumps along the way, but most of what we see is, is pretty good. But in Acts chapter seven, things are starting to change. We, we just read in Acts seven that Stephen 
dies. Stephen becomes the, the first martyr in the history of the Christian church. He was the first person ever to die for the name of Christ. And when Stephen dies, that death launches a wave of persecution across Jerusalem and across Christianity that the church had never seen. I want to pick it back up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says this. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day, say it with me, a great persecution against the church. It was called the day of persecution, day of great persecution, and it was against the church in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus told them six years ago, he says, stay in Jerusalem. Now, they think they're just going to stay there just for a couple of days and wait on the Holy Spirit. Well, the reality is they, they, they haven't left in six years. The church is still in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, was the epicenter. It was their home base. Uh, Jerusalem was a place of familiarity. It's where they had been. It's where they live. It's where they set up camp. It's where they shop. It's where relationships are. So Jerusalem was what was familiar. Jerusalem was what was comfortable. It was a place of security. And, and all of a sudden, we read in Acts chapter 8 that they have to leave. They have to scatter. This day of persecution comes, and all of a sudden, they're no longer in their place of comfort. What was familiar and what was comfortable, they had to leave. Why am I saying that? It's been my experience that when the enemy wants to oppose the men and women of God, he will often attack the familiar and comforts of their lives. He, he, he will attack the familiar things. He, he gets in places where you've been comfortable. It's places uh, that are, it's your financial areas of your life. It's relationships in your life. It, it's things, his whole, his whole MO is to make you uncomfortable. He wants to, to get under your skin. His goal is let's make them uncomfortable. Let's, let's get them discouraged. Let's get them to worry about tomorrow. Let, let's get them fearful. Let's get them for the first time to question their faith. You know, let, let, let's get them to focus off of the God of, of their eternity and let's get them to focus on the circumstances they're, 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 they're walking through. And that's the way that the enemy works because he, he's cunning. He, he's crafty. He's, he, he's a schemer. He, he's, he's smart. He's, he, he's a strategist. He, when, when he's doing one thing, he's really doing something else. Like, don't, don't look over here. I'm doing something. It's a sleight of hand. He's always doing something else. He's, he, he's cunning and crafting and scheming, and he always has an attack. He's, he's going to attack you. He's going to attack us. He's going to attack the church. And, and in Acts 8, they're feeling the attack. And this attack comes in the form of persecution. Everybody say persecution. I, I want to do a couple things this morning. I, I want to tell you what persecution is. I want to I define it. I, I want to talk to you about the progression of persecution. I want to tell you who's being persecuted, who's going to be persecuted, but I also want to show you God's hand in all this. So, so everybody say it again, persecution. Here's the definition of persecution. Persecution means to afflict, to harass, to oppress, or to inflict unjust pain and punishment to a person or people based upon creed, color, or culture. That's what the word persecution means. In Acts 8, we're seeing this persecution. Stephen is killed. Homes are being invaded and we see people scattering. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. How many of you understand that? It's not one day everybody's in the church lifting their hands, singing hallelujah, and the next day the government comes in and throws everybody out. That's not what it is. It's not one day everybody's all excited about the church and what they're doing and the next day let's kill the Christians. It doesn't work that way. There is a progression to persecution. And you have to recognize 
what it is and where we are, because I believe we're, we're at the beginning stages of this thing inside the church. So I'm going to give you really quick, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to give you just the five levels or the five stages to the progression of persecution. Number one, it always starts with stereotyping, that there's going to be a stereotyping of the targeted group. We're going to lump all Christians in one group and we're going to talk about them. They, 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 all those Christians, I mean, you've heard it. And, and listen to me, as we take a stand for Christ, as the church stands on the word of God, it's going to get, go against groupthink. It's going to go against culture. It's going to go against ideologies and you will get stereotyped because of it. If you stand on the word of God, at some point it's going to oppose culture. How many of you understand that? Whether it's politically, whether it's sexually, whatever it is, there's something that you believe that the people out there don't believe if you hold Judeo-Christian values. And that's where they're going to start stereotyping you. They're going to stereotype me. They're doing it now. They're going to throw us all in a, in, a, in a group and they're going to say, oh, those Christians, all those people at OSC, y'all, they brainwash. They drank the Kool-Aid. They're small-minded. They're unwilling to change. They're... They're stuck in their ways. This is, their Bible is ancient. Y'all, this is 2021. Get with the program, man. They're going to start stereotyping and it's what the world does. All those Christians are. All those people at OSC are. All those people that believe in Jesus are. And if you don't go with their groupthink, if you don't go with culture, if you don't go with their mindsets, they will stereotype us. It's happening Right now, they will stereotype you. Number two, after we get stereotyped, after a group gets stereotyped, the second stage is to vilify them. Let's make them the enemy. Let, let, let's go after them. Let's, let's talk about them. Let's have an agenda against them. Let's, let's put accusations against them. Let's twist what they say. Let's spin it to make it fit our agenda. And so when, when the church does not toe the line anymore in this cultural revolution of the world, Listen to me, we're now described today as, just listen to me, you can say amen if you agree, is what they think of us, closed-minded, we're, we're harmful to human dignity and freedom, we're, we're intolerant, hateful, bigoted, unfair, homophobic, reactionary, and just plain mean. And if you stand on the word of God in any area, that's what they, oh, they're just mean, they don't like you, they don't like those type of people. That is the furthest thing from the truth. People, people say stuff about me all the time. Or we all just hate that group of people. Listen to me. Everybody's welcome. The gospel's for everybody. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, baby. But the church becomes vilified. Let's vilify them. Let's criticize them. Let's discredit them. Let's make them the bad guys and spin everything to make the church the monster. And we'll even do it in the name of human rights. So we get vilified. You get stereotyped and you get vilified. Then the third, the third level of progression when it comes to this thing is they start to marginalize whatever the targeted group is. Let's make it hard for them to succeed. Let them hold their beliefs and we'll stereotype them and we'll vilify them and we'll talk about them and we'll try to cancel them. But let's make it really hard for them to be a Christian. Let, let's make it really hard to be a Christian in the workplace. Let's make it really hard to be a Christian in the school system. Let's make it really hard even to, to have church services. Let's make it really, really hard. And, and so what we'll do is we're going to attack their religious liberties. We're, we're going we're to do this with legislation. 
We're going to do this with laws. And, and if they buck against our laws, we'll file lawsuits against Christian businesses and organizations that hold to Judeo-Christian values. We'll start penalizing them. Let's, let's penalize churches and businesses if they take a stand that goes against our anti-Christian, anti-Judeo-Christian system. Let, let's promote secular humanism. And the second the church says something against it, we're going to go against them. And you will see them try to shut down churches. You'll see lawsuits come up. You're going to see this all in the name of fairness. It's going to happen with sexuality. They're going to tell us who you can marry, who you can't marry. Listen, the Bible is very, very explicit on, on, on what, what it means to be a married person. That doesn't mean I don't have compassion for somebody who doesn't believe the Bible. doesn't mean I'm not empathetic, that I want to help, that I want to share the gospel with. It just means that, that our value system is not the same value system as the world. And so because of that, they will try to marginalize the church. It's the marginalization of the Christian church. I believe it's happening right now. Now, once we get to this marginalization stage and you're there for a while, now this hasn't happened here, but it's happened in countries around the world. The next thing they will do will be criminalizing the targeted group. That it will become illegal. It is illegal right now. It's illegal in some countries to be a Christian. It is illegal to have church services. It is illegal to preach Christ. It's illegal in some countries to own a Bible. It's happening in China right now. You, you cannot have a service like this in China. They would arrest me. They would arrest you. They will arrest you for owning a Bible. They will arrest you for preaching Christ. I, I recently heard a story of a, of a missionary in China in the place where he, li- he lived, obviously it was illegal to be a Christian. It was illegal to own a Bible. So he figured out a way to open a company, and he started smuggling in Bibles through car parts. And what they would do was he would hand them out to these, the people in his village, and they would literally cut out four pages of the Bible at one time, fold them up. They would stick it in their kids' shoes, send them to school, and the kids at school would trade Bible pages like you and I would trade baseball cards when we were kids. And that's what they would do. And these people were so hungry for the word of God that they were willing to place their life on the line over four pages of the Bible. They would take those four pages home. They would memorize the four pages, send it back to school with their kid in their shoe, trade for another four pages so they can learn the next four chapters of the book they were trying to read. All because they wanted to learn about Christ. Do you see a stark difference between that and where we are in America? Listen, in America last year, in America last year, during a pandemic, Half a million Bibles were sold each week, each week. And in other countries right now, it's a criminal act to even own a Bible. In some parts of the world today, it is illegal to be a Christian. In China, you'll get arrested for being a Christian. In North Korea right now, Christians are sent to labor camps. Can you imagine trying to be a Christian right now in Afghanistan? With the Taliban trying to impose their version of Sharia law? I mean, it's hard enough to be a Muslim that doesn't line up with their value system. Can you imagine being a Christian? In countries like Somalia and Pakistan and Nigeria, insurgencies of terrorist groups have kidnapped, tortured, and murdered men and women just for professing Christ. It's illegal. It's illegal. And finally, the fifth stage and the final stage is is to eradicate the targeted group. And and this is the enemy's ultimate plan, I believe, for for any Christian, because he doesn't want to come to steal to kill and destroy. And we have seen this game plan, not in my lifetime, but we've seen it dozens and dozens of times. We we saw with King Herod, y'all remember King Herod? King Herod took every baby under the age of two years old and had them killed. 
it was a genocide by, by, by infants. It was kill them all. Emperor Nero was killing Christians. That is how Paul, the apostle Paul, was killed by, by, by Emperor Nero. He wanted to eradicate Christianity. Why? Because it went against uh, his agenda. He had an agenda. Anytime a Christianity opposes an agenda, it's, it's going to go. We, we saw it uh, less than 100 years ago, 80 years ago. We saw it with, with, with Hitler in, in Nazi Germany in the Holocaust where six million Jews were killed. Six million. Wiping out, trying to wipe out an entire creed, color, or race. That's what the ultimate goal of persecution is. So I, I just wanted to paint it to you in, in its various degrees and stages. And somebody asked me, where do I think we are? Somewhere between stage two and three. I think between um, marginalization and vilification. That's where we are right now. So, so we know what it is. But my question is, biblically, who will be persecuted? Biblically, who's going to be persecuted? Because we come to church and we're like, oh, man, it's not illegal here. And, yeah, I, I know there's some things that, you know, culture doesn't really like that we like. But, I mean, come on, man. Are you saying? Look, I'm just going to tell you what Scripture says, okay? Here's what Scripture says. According to the Bible, who's going to be persecuted? These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than its master. Watch this. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now watch this. We're taking a step deeper. The apostle Paul, who writes to a young Timothy in his second letter in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this about persecution. Indeed, say this next word, all who desire to live a godly life, a godly life in Christ, will be persecuted. Now, this scripture in itself is one of the most ironic texts in all of scripture. This is Paul. Y'all know Paul's former name, right? Saul. This is the same guy that we just read about that they threw their coat at his feet. And he was the one who led the insurgency in Acts chapter eight. He's the one that was persecuting and killing Christians. This is the guy that we just read in Acts eight, chapter, uh, verse three, that was going into churches and homes and ripping people out of their homes. This same guy, a chapter later, Acts chapter 9, we'll read it in two weeks, has a conversion with Christ on the road to Damascus, gets radically transformed and becomes the greatest evangelist of all times. He's one of the greatest preachers of all times. It's the Apostle Paul. He writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And so the guy who is doing the persecution in Acts chapter 8 ends up being the guy who received more persecution than anyone else in Scripture. And so after 30 years of writing or, or, or being a part of the insurgency in, in Acts chapter 8, 30 years later, he tells Timothy, guess what? You're going to be persecuted. He says, all who desire to live a goodly life, a godly life, will be persecuted. What is Paul saying? Paul is convinced that there is such a tension between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mindset of hedonistic worldly culture that persecution is inevitable to every single one of us who desires to live a godly life. Look at what he says. Indeed, all. I looked up that word all in the Greek. It means all. All who desire to live a godly life. At some point in your life, it is inevitable that you're going to face persecution because of your faith. So what Paul is saying is the only way not to be persecuted is not to live a godly life. So if you came to church today, but you live this vanilla, bland, passionless, lukewarm, 
one foot in the church, one foot in the world, never really pursue the things of God type of life. Great news. You're probably not going to face any persecution. But for those of you who have stepped over the line and said the decision has been made, I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I'm going all in for Jesus. Listen to me. It's coming your way. You will be persecuted for the name of Jesus. If you stand on Judeo-Christian values, sooner or later, persecution is coming your way. You can expect it at some point in your life. So where? Where? How, how does this thing flesh out? Where does the persecution take place? Go back with me to verse 3, and I'm going to tell you what I think. It says this, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he drug off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's what I believe. I believe this, that as times become darker and darker, the two main areas that the enemy will attack is going to be against the church house and against your house. He will attack the church house and he will attack your house. As you take a stand for Jesus, as we stand on the word of God, I believe the area that you will see the greatest attack is against the church and against your home. It's the way the enemy works. He wants to get in your home. He wants to discourage you. It's the attack against your home. It'll come financially. Uh, it'll come emotionally. It'll come against your kids. It'll come against your marriage. If he can just get in your home, if he can discourage you, if he can get you to question your faith, if, if he can just get you in your home to, to, to quit believing it's going to happen in the home, and it'll happen in the church. The second you take a stand, it, the, the attack will come. And I'm, I'm, I'll be as vulnerable as I can. I Personally, I felt more attacks in my home over the past two or three months than I had the past two or three years. We love Jesus more than we've ever loved Jesus. Our family's better than we've ever been before. But how many know when you take a stand, when you declare war on the enemy, he respond, responds appropriately. And it's been attack after attack, I don't have the time to tell you the physical attack that's been on my wife's body, just attack after attack. I'm talking about financial attacks, just little things pop up here. And, and you're like, where in the world is all this coming from? God, I thought if we gave our life to you, it was all going to be butterflies and lollipops and Reese's peanut butter cups. But the second you take a stand, the second you stand on the word of God, the opposition comes. The attack. Attack after attack. And it's important for us to understand where the attack is coming from. Because if you can understand the attack, then you know who to fight and how to fight it. Y'all, the enemy is smart. Y'all know what he's been doing for the last 18 months? He's been attacking the church. If I can get them divided. If I can get them on different political sides, if I can get them on different socioeconomic sides, if I can get them on different race sides, if I get in the middle of, no, 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 no. you got to see it for what it is. It's, it's been an attack. It's been, a, we, we got to know who our enemy is. We've been, we've been fighting the wrong enemy. It's not Republican against Democrat. It's not black against white. For I wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's a real enemy out there and he's crafty and he's cunning and he's wise. So the attack comes. It comes to the church house. It comes to your house. So the more we stand for Jesus, the more we're going to fill it in both of those places. So we have to, be, we have to understand what it is so we know how to fight it because he's crafty. And so, so it's so easy. It's so easy to look at everything that's happened in our world in, in the last 
18 months and be like, oh my gosh, it's, as RJ was saying, we're looking at two different stories. What, what story are you looking at? It's so easy to look at the attack. It's so, it's so easy, you know, to, to look at the discouragement. It's so easy to look at the despair and you're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Oh my gosh, it's so bad. Oh my gosh, what's, and it's so easy to look at that. What I want to do this morning is I want to help you change your perspective because because I'm telling you things about persecution. I'm telling you things about opposition, not to scare you, not to discourage you, but actually to encourage you. Because if we just stop the story there and say, hey, everybody spread. They they pull people out of their homes. It was it was it was awful. Of course, it's awful. But you've got to read the the other story. How many know every story's got two sides? I'm trying to get you to the other side. You need to wake that Adele up on the other side and say hello from the other side. You You got to wake her up on the inside of you. Hello. See, during trials and opposition and persecution, the tendency is to only see what the enemy is doing. But I, I want to remind you that God's doing something too. And what God's doing always trumps what the enemy's doing. It's about perspective. See, perspective doesn't change what I see. It just changes how I see it. We've we, we got to change how we see things right now. Look, it, it, I heard a story a long time ago and I wrote it down. There's there these two boys who were twins. One was an incurable optimist and one was a pessimist. And the parents were worried about the extreme behaviors of the boys. So they took the boys to a psychologist. And a psychologist observed them for a while and he says they can be easily helped. He said they had a room filled with all the toys a boy could want. So they put the pessimist in the room to allow him to enjoy life. They also had another room that was full of horse manure. They put the optimist in that room and they observed both boys for a week through one-way mirrors. The pessimist continued to be a pessimist stating that he had no one to play with and he didn't like the toys. But when they went to look in the optimist room, they were astounded to find the young boy on his hands and knees digging through the menorah. The psychologist runs in the room and says, what are you doing? He says, with all the poop in this room, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And I guess my question I'm trying to ask today is, are we looking at the poop? Are we looking for the poop? Or are we looking for the pony? Because whatever you look for is what you're going to find. Are you looking for the discouragement? Are you looking for the despair? Are you saying, God, I know you're in this thing somewhere. If you look for God, you will find him. See, when opposition comes, God will use it for his glory. Every single time. What the enemy means for evil, God will turn for his good. He will turn it for your good. Do you, watch this. Do you remember the original plan that God had in Acts chapter 1? Do you remember what he told him from the very beginning? He said, here's my plan. Here it is, Acts 1, 8. Here's what he says. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is to come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. He gave them a plan. He gave them a plan. Do you know that God has a plan for you? God has a plan for Opelousas. He has a plan for your family. He has a plan for your marriage. He has a plan for your kids. Here's the biggest proponent to the plan of God. It's called time. Watch this. Let's go and check the boxes and see what happened in seven chapters, six years. Six years later, remember God had a plan. Six years later, let's go through the plan. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Can we check that off the box? Did that happen in the first six years? Check, that was Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came, they were filled. Number two, he says, you will be filled with my power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Didn't that happen? Check, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6. They still in, they're still in Jerusalem. He says, you will be my witnesses in Judea. Did that happen? No. What? 
You will be my witness in Samaria. Did that happen? No. But God told him it would happen. What well, just hasn't happened yet. But go, let's go back to see what happens during the persecution. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, and Saul approved his education or execution. And there arose on the date gray of persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Now, the tendency is to look just on the attack. Oh, they're all scattered. It's all bad. Look where they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the enemy comes in on one day with persecution. But God says, this is what I actually ordained from day one. The plan the whole time was for you to go to Judea and Samaria. The enemy thought he had you. What he didn't know was he's expediting my plan. Do you see what I'm saying? Listen to me. There are some places that God has planned for you to possess, but they will never be discovered and possessed without the enemy's attack. It's the enemy's attack that expedites the plan of God. It's the reason I'm standing on this stage today. Three years ago, y'all heard my story. I couldn't get out of bed. I was suicidal. I'm quitting ministry. That was the attack of the enemy. You know, that's what the, the enemy used that to expedite the plan of God so I can leave Midtown to come here for two years and serve alongside and under Pastor Eugene and Miss Heidi to one day stand on the stage and, and be your pastor. It was God's plan the whole time. He just had to use the enemy's attack to expedite it. What am I saying? God always uses the persecution and suffering of his people to spread the truth and love of Christ to a lost and dying world. So here's how it happens. Persecution and opposition comes, then, everybody say then, God's truth and love can spread to the, through the world. It's what happens in Acts chapter 8. Persecution comes, everybody say then, then God spreads his truth and love to Samaria and Judea. It just doesn't happen in Acts 8. It's what Jesus says will happen in the last days. I believe, this is my personal opinion, I believe we're living in the last days. The Bible says we don't know the day nor the hour, but we do know the season. Jesus gave us some things to look at in Scripture. I'm going to read some of them that talk about this. I think, my dad and I were talking last night or yesterday, I think it's a privilege to be here in the last days. You know how I know that? I, I got a sports background. Coach has a sports background. Obviously, he was a basketball coach. Listen. It's so easy to look at the Bible and say, man, I wish I would have been there when it started. But you know who you put as a coach? You know who you put at the end of the game? You put your horses in. If you're running a relay race, you don't put your slowest guy last. You put your fastest guy last. Because that's not how you start the race. It's how you finish. And when I think God was looking at Opelousas and God was looking at America, he says, what kind of people can I put here at the end of the race? I'm going to raise up some people in St. Landry Parish at the end of the, I'm going to put my hosses in at the end of the race. I need some game changers at the end because it's going to be dark and the world is tired and they're coming at them. I'm going to put some men and some women of integrity who will stand on the word of God and preach Christ in these last days. I'm looking at some hosses. I don't know the female version of hoss, but ladies, use some, some hossettes. Men, just don't call your wife a hoss today. It doesn't work out good. So Jesus is talking about the last days. And I want to read to you what he says in Luke chapter 21. 
Then he said to them, this is, this, is, this is how he says you'll know when we're in the last days. He said to them, nation will rise against. Now, if you just read that with your English eyes, you will think that's America will rise against Canada. That's not what it means. In the last days, nation will rise against nation. That Greek word is ethnos. The word ethnos means ethnicity. It means skin pigmentation. In the last days, race will rise against race. Hello. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. That word kingdom in the Greek means ideology. Race will rise against race and ideology will rise against ideology. Do you see this happening, church? Okay, then it says there will be great earthquakes. Have y'all been watching the news? In various places. Famines. 40% of the world is undernourished. And pestilence, do you know the biblical definition of the word pestilence? It's a pandemic. Infectious disease. And he says all these things will happen. Race against race. Ideology against ideology. Watch this. He, he, He goes on through these things. And then he says this. And there will be great terrors and signs. But before, go to the next verse. But before this. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors. So this is what he says, the last days. He says it's race against race. It's ideology against ideology. It's famines, and it's pandemics, and it's persecution. And he says when it's your persecution, he says when persecution comes your way, look at verse 13, this will be your to bear witness. goes to their homes all they saw was persecution could have been an opportunity knocking at their door we're looking at all these things that are happening and all we see is the negative we 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 see the persecution we see COVID-19 we see the race we see political stuff and all God is telling us is wait a minute It's opportunity knocking at your door. Why is it opportunity knocking at your door? Because in the middle of pestilence, in the middle against race against race, in the middle of ideology against ideology, everybody's looking for an answer. The answer is Trump. The answer is Biden. How high to both of them? How prophetic are we if we think Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the answer to our problems? There's only one answer, y'all. He says, this will be your opportunity, he says, to be my witness. Wait a minute. That's what he told him in Acts 1-8. You will be my What they didn't know is that it would come through persecution. God has plans for you. He has plans for Opelousas. And sometimes we abort those plans because we don't like what's knocking at our door. What am I saying? I'm saying that God never wastes persecution and opposition, but rather uses them to serve his mission. Up until now, the book of Acts, all the ministries taking place, has stayed in Jerusalem. They got comfortable there. 
They never left. No one had moved out to Judea or Samaria. But in Acts chapter 8, the same exact order that God tells them to go to is the same exact order that they spread to. Acts chapter 8, those two unreached areas, they go in that order. Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. And when they go there, it's God ordained. Watch what happens when they go there to confirm the missionary purpose of persecution. Let's fast forward to three chapters. Acts chapter 11. I want to read what happens to the scattered people. It says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word uh, to, to, to none except Jews. So it's only Jews. But in Antioch, some spoke to Greeks also. So it's the Greeks who take the word. And they take the word around the world. It says there were some of them of, of Cyprus and Cyrene who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas never goes to Antioch if people in Antioch didn't hear the message. People in Antioch never hear the message if the people in Samaria and Judea don't tell Hellenistic Jews or Greeks. The Hellenistic Jews and Greeks don't hear the message unless the church is persecuted and people go to Samaria. What am I trying to say? Persecution reached the unreachable. Because of persecution, the unsavable becomes saved. Here's my first big thought I want to give you, then we're going to Give you a second thought and you can go home. When persecution and opposition come to the church, people who have never been reached will be reached with the gospel. Second big thought, and I'm closing. Help me out, Vic. It says, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and in, number, in verse 5, we're introduced to a new character. It says, Philip went to Samaria. Now, watch this. Philip was one of the seven who saw the need in Acts chapter 6 and said, hey, the widows aren't getting taken care of. Philip was one of the guys they appointed along with Stephen. It says of Philip and of Stephen, they were both full of the, the Holy Spirit. This was who Philip was. Later he's called Philip the Evangelist. So we have Philip, and Philip goes to the city of Samaria. Now Samaria was a region that was north of Judea. And it's a place that was despised by the Jews. This was a land that in 1 Kings chapter 19, we see King Ahab and Jezebel. This is the land that they settled. If you remember about King Ahab and, and Jezebel, they brought Baal worship, demonic worship to Samaria. Samaria and Jerusalem had a very sketchy history. They were very, very different. First of all, I want you to just see the picture of this. Samaritans and the Jews had different ethnic backgrounds. They had different skin pigmentation. The Samaritans and the Jews had different socioeconomic statuses. Samaria was an administrative city. Jerusalem was more of an agricultural place. Because of this, they had different political ideologies. They were different in every way. And it says this of Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, went to Samaria and he proclaimed to them the name of Christ. Verse 6 says, and the crowds in one accord paid attention to him. 
the fact that they even paid attention to him was a miracle. And look what happened. When because they had paid attention to this Hellenistic Jew, these Samaritans in verse 7 says, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many were paralyzed or lame were healed. Okay, watch this. And it says, And there was much joy in that city. You're about to get this. Jews and Samaritans came together in the name of Christ and the city was healed and full of joy. You didn't get it. Jews and Samaritans came together in the name of Christ and the city was healed and full of joy. You still didn't get it. Jews and Samaritans came together Christ and the city was healed and full of joy. Listen to me. If we want Opelousas to come together and be healed and be full of joy, here's what I think we ought to do. We can't come together in the name of white people. We can't come together in the name of black people. We can't come to the, together in the name of Republicans. We can't come together in the name of Democrats. There's only one name that can heal our land. There's only one name that can bring us together. There's only one name that can do this thing. There's only one name that can bring joy, and that is the name of Jesus. It's for your family. It's for our community. It's for our church. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name that we ought to speak over our Palooza. Lord, I speak Jesus over our Palooza. I proclaim Jesus over St. Landry Parish. I proclaim Jesus over every household. There is only one name. It's the name of Jesus. And if we put our hope in anything else and our trust in anything else, if we magnify anything else, and we missed it. It says this, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out, many were healed. If you keep reading it, revival breaks out, and there was much joy in that city. Much joy in that city. Let me just summarize this thing. To summarize, when the persecution and opposition came, the unreachable got reached, revival broke out, and great joy came to the whole city. Wait a minute. Let me say it one more time. When persecution and opposition came, the unreachable got reached, revival broke out, and great joy came to the whole city. You know what I'm speaking over Opelousas? You know what I'm praying for Opelousas right now? That the unreachable get reached. That revival breaks out and great joy comes to the whole city. And that's exactly what we're going to pray that in just a minute. We're going to pray for that. And I believe that wholeheartedly. With my, Why has things been so chaotic here? It's the opposition. It's people getting scattered. But you've got to go back to the original plan. The original plan was go to Judea and Samaria and the Holy Spirit's going to follow you. I'm going back to the original plan for Opelousas. I'm going back to the original plan for your life. I believe God wants to break out revival in your home, in your family, with your kids, in our school system, in our community. But before the unsavable gets saved, 
before revival breaks out in Opelousas, before great joy comes to the whole city, it's got to start with us. Y'all, if we don't get it right in here, it'll never be right out there. And I guess my question is, are you saved? Is revival happening in your heart? Are you full of joy? Man, when I was a kid, we used to sing that song in Sunday school. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my where? My where? My where? The problem is we put joy in everything else. If the right political candidate wins, I got joy. If who I like in office is, I got joy. It's time to get it back in our heart. My first call is just to us personally. If you need personal revival in your life, you need the fire of God to burn again. I'm just going to ask you to stand up. You just be, Pastor Nick, I need revival in my life. I need some things to be revived. There's been some dead areas. For some of you, you just need to give your life to Christ. You need to repent today. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry I'm coming back to you. Just repent. Some of you, you've lost the joy of the Lord. And it's so easy because you've been looking at the opposition. You've been turning on the news. You've been watching everything. And we fell victim too. We started stereotyping people. All those people with masks. All those people without masks. Are you serious? Vilifying other Christians because they vote a certain way. It starts with us. I got the joy in my heart. We just lift up your hands today, Father. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for what we've made it. Lord, today we turn our eyes to you. Yes, the opposition come. Yes, the persecution will come. Yes, there will be attacks. But God, we recognize it for what it is. And God, our fight is not against flesh and blood. God, we have a real enemy. But God, your word declares he will be under our feet. Get under our feet, Satan. You have no authority in this place. You have no authority in St. Landry Parish. You have no authority in my homes. I plead the blood of Jesus over our city right now. I plead the blood of Jesus over our school system right now. I plead the blood of Jesus over law enforcement officers in Opelousas right now. I plead the blood of Jesus over young men and young women right now in St. Landry Parish. I plead the blood of Jesus over every home represented. Lord, we need your protection. Lord, thank you, God, that you have a plan for us, God. You've never wavered from that plan. But God, sometimes opposition comes, God. And when it comes, God, it's not to stop the plan, it's to expedite it. God, we want to walk in your plans. We want to walk in your ways. God, we stand up today saying we've stepped over the line. The decision hasn't been made. We're not looking back. We're not letting go. We're not slowing down. And I want to just declare this over your life. We're going to sing this song. I want to declare it over St. Landry Parish, over Opelousas, over our school system, over your homes. Some of you, you may want to come down here at this altar and just worship. But here's what we're going to declare today. That God is the God of Opelousas. He is the God of this city. He's the God of this nation. And I believe this, the greater things are yet to come. We haven't scratched the surface yet. We're believing for revival. How many believe that greater things have yet to come?